0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Let us worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Gracious Father, you have done great things for us this week. You have fed us. You have clothed us. You have given us warm houses, good work, and health and life. You have answered specific prayers for health and healing, for safety and provision. You have directed our steps, our words, our decisions, and you have led us down good paths. You have surrounded us with your mercy and loving kindness, in the care of friends and family, giving success and blessing to our labors. You have made us fruitful, and we overflow with your abundance. You have forgiven our sins day by day, and you have given us grace to forgive one another. You have given wisdom to us for sorting through difficult matters, and you have not allowed the most challenging things to consume us. Therefore, we would praise you with our whole heart. We would tell all your marvelous works. We would be glad and rejoice in you. We would sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so we worship you now in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. One of the characteristics that marks Christian wisdom is the constant appeal to God's word. The latest studies, the latest trends, the latest rage may or may not be helpful, and chances are good that it's not, but God's word stands forever. And you can tell who you are trying to please by whose word you pay most attention to. So ask yourself, whose word has been on your mind? A news story eating at you? An article on the financial markets? A Supreme Court ruling? A new diet or health concern? Something about vaccinations? Maybe a hard word from a friend or a family member? Something your boss said, whether good or bad? The words that you hold on to, the words that you share the most, talk about the most, think about the most, are the words you are trusting. And the words that you trust are a pretty good litmus test of who you most want to please. But the words of man are like grass. The best words of man are like a really good flower, faded and gone in a few days. But God's word is pure, like silver tried in a furnace, purified seven times. His word is perfect, converting the soul. His statutes are always right, and they rejoice the heart. His commands enlighten the eyes. But the words of man are vanity and covetousness. They're empty and grasping and fading, and the approval of man is the same. But God's word is fixed and sure, settled in heaven, his his faithfulness to all generations. His words are sweet like honey. His words are bright light like the dawning of a new day. And when we seek his word, we seek him, and we always find him trustworthy and true. So as we prepare to confess our sins together, let us sing Out of the Depths of Sadness, found on page 168. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. Father, we confess that we have not been upright. We have trusted in the words of man more than your words. And in so doing, we have sought the approval and blessing of man more than your approval and blessing. We confess that this is sinful and foolish. The words and wisdom of men are deceitful, faltering and fading but your words are true and faithful and never fail. Give us godly skepticism of the words of man and incline our hearts to your word. Teach us your judgments and cause your word to be our shield and tower and hope. Therefore, we ask you to forgive us and wash us clean by the power of your word that was made flesh and died and rose again in order to make us and all things new. We know that if we in the church only feign this repentance, this prayer will be ineffectual And so we confess our individual sins honestly before you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus and Amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Remember that in the gospel the righteousness of God was revealed, not our righteousness, but God's perfect righteousness in dealing with your sin with your sin on the cross of Jesus, God's upright one. Therefore, I declare to you
1: that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Be God. Amen. The text this morning is Colossians 3, starting at verse 18. These are the words of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for the text before us. I pray that our hearts would lie open before you and that your spirit would work in us. Show us the places where we should take heed and obey and make application. Father, I pray that this would be a transformative word in our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we continue through the book of Colossians, we've come to a section where Paul turns his attention to the social relations that uh, the Colossian. Uh, the the Colossian saints found themselves in. He addresses wives, he addresses husbands, he addresses children, he addresses fathers, he addresses slaves, and he addresses masters. And this is not a standalone uh, isolated piece of scripture. It fits into Paul's overarching argument and we have to pay careful attention to see what he is doing here. After someone has called on the Lord, After they've been baptized, that person blinks, looks around, and one of the things he sees is all the same people, the same old world. The sun still rises in the east. He goes home to the same place. He still has the same shirts hanging in his closet. All he sees is the same world. He's forgiven, which is exhilarating, and he's in fellowship with God, which is a novelty to him. But when he goes back to work on the following Monday, he runs into all the same people. What what is he supposed to do now? He has to make particular decisions. And while he is different, everyone around him appears to be the same. A lot of the world appears to be the same. The world appears to still run on the same principles. How does this radical difference in me transform everything when everything is not yet transformed. Well this section of Colossians helps us address that question. and I think it helps us uh, it's a key to understanding what has gone before in chapter three. So I want you to remember that the entire congregation, all of the Colossians in earlier in chapter three, have been exhorted to put sins to death, whether sins of the flesh or sins of attitude, sins of the mouth. Sins of the flesh are addressed in verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are on the earth, and then uh, in verse 8, but now you put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. So in verse 5, sins of the flesh, carnal sins, and verse 8, sins of attitude, sins of bad attitudes, sins of the mouth. That has been, that, that exhortation has been given to the whole congregation. All of the congregation has been urged to take off the old man and to put on their Jesus coat, as I mentioned last week. They are to take off the coat of the old Adam and put on the coat of the new Adam. They are to take off the clothing of the old corrupt way of being human, and they are to put on the coat of the new, redeemed, resurrected way of being human that's found in Jesus Christ. Put off put on. And this is an ongoing reality in the Christian's life. And so when the, when the Apostle comes to th- these particular social relationships husband to wife, wife to husband, master to slave, slave to master, parents to children, children to parents. When he comes to these particular social relations he's assuming that everyone he's talking to is behaving as a Christian already. This means a godly Christian man can now do what Paul tells husbands to do, the same with wives and so on. Without true piety toward God, nothing else in the world is going to work along biblical lines. Another way of saying this is it takes a good Christian to make a good husband. It takes a good Christian to make a good wife. It takes a good Christian to make a good child. It takes a good Christian to make a good parent. You can't say, well, I I want to skip over that doctrinal stuff. I want to skip over that theological stuff. I want to get to the practical stuff. What is a wife supposed to do? What is a husband supposed to do? Well, guaranteed, if you go straight to the practical stuff, you're going to misapply absolutely everything. You're going to have it upside down and backwards. And then it's not going to work and then you're going to blame God. right? It doesn't work that way. You have to do the things in the, in the way God says to do them. You have to do them in the order God says to do them. You have to honor Him in all of this. Now, That means what what Paul tells all the Colossians to do in chapter 3 is the governing environment of everything that he's saying in particular here. Wives are told to be submissive to their husbands, which is proper in the Lord. Also note it says to their own husbands, this is not a requirement that women submit to men. It's a requirement that wives submit to their own husbands. And the a corollary of that is that that means wives do not submit to men generally. You submit to your own husband. That's a buffer. That's a protection. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, which is proper in the Lord. Verse 18, in the original Greek, it may surprise you to learn, the word for submit means submit. Husbands are told to love their wives, and it may surprise you to learn that love is love. Husbands, love your wives. And then it says not to be bitter or resentful against them. Verse 19. Don't be bitter or resentful against them. This is a principle we've appealed to before, but when God tells us, when God singles out a particular type of person and says, now you, don't do that, it's because there will be a temptation to do that. So God doesn't... uh, Uh, When God says, beware of the cliff, when God puts up a sign says, beware of the cliff, that's because there's a cliff there. When it says, husbands, don't be resentful or bitter against your wives, it's because husbands will want to do that. Husbands will have a tendency to be bitter or resentful against their wives. Paul says, not to. Children, and and by here, I, I, I believe he's referring to dependent children, the reason for that in a minute. Children, meaning dependent children, are to be obedient to their parents in everything which pleases the Lord. Verse 20. Now, the reason I take this as dependent children is in Mark chapter 7, uh, when Jesus is talking about how uh, the Jews had set set aside the word of God for the sake of their tradition he says, the Bible says, honor your father and mother, but you say, whatever I dedicate as Corban to the temple, I don't have to give to my parents. Now, what Jesus is doing there is he's talking about grown children. Grown children are to honor their father and mother, and they're to do it financially. Grown children honor their father and mother financially. Dependent children honor their father and mother through obedience, but all children honor their father and mother. So there's a there's a process where uh, little children honor their father and mother through obedience. There's a transition, and then after the transition, grown children who have uh, who are out on their own have independent means. They are to make sure that they continue to honor and father and uh, continue to honor father and mother by taking care of them and not running off, giving to giving to the temple, giving money elsewhere when it should have been dedicated to their parents. There's also, incidentally, this is not in the text, but there's a transition between those two. There are children who are dependent, and there are children who are uh, grown, and then there's that college-agey period, right, where you're out on your own, you look like an adult, um, and people think you're an adult on the street, but then you're not quite fully self-sufficient yet, and we have a natural human tendency, and this is something, this is a bad, this is a bad habit that is going to be, we're going to see this throughout this whole message. We want to we want to assume the prerogatives of our position first instead of the responsibilities of our position. Whatever position you aspire to, you should aspire to it. If you're aspiring to it biblically, you should aspire to any position by aspiring to the responsibilities of it first, the prerogatives of it second. So let's say, illustrate this, let's say a 17-year-old um uh, child comes to mom and dad and says, mom, dad, I just turned 17, and I was thinking about maybe changing some of the things we have around the house here. What are mom and dad bracing for? They're bracing for a, a request to increase the allowance. They're, bracing, or they're asking, he's going to ask for an extension, a curfew, he's going to ask to be able, allowed to come in later, hang out, because he's 17 now. What would happen if the son said, uh, Mom, Dad, I'm 17, I think I really ought to be picking up more of the insurance payments on the car. <laughs> Mom would rush, my poor baby feel, <laughs> feel his forehead, well, because nobody asks to assume the responsibilities first, right? But the interesting thing is, if you assumed responsibilities first, your parents would be much more likely to want to grant the privileges. When you're grasping after privilege, what, privileges, what do they want to do? They want to give you not a single solitary one of them. That's what they want. To, why? Because you're still acting like a child. You're still acting me, me, me. I want, I want what's coming to me first. What What you do is you you seek the responsibilities first, and the privileges will come as they may. So that's a that's by way of a that's a rabbit trail. But we're back on the we're back on it now. Dependent children honor their father and mother by obedience. Grown children honor their father and mother by taking uh, taking responsibility for them, caring for them, and so on. So all children, whatever age you are, all children are to honor father and mother. Fathers are told not to be provocative. Verse 21, again, remember the principle. If if husbands are told not to be bitter and resentful against their wives, that's because a number of husbands are going to be tempted to be bitter and resentful against their wives, and Paul says, "Don't do it." Uh, fathers are told not to be provocative. Why? Well, because fathers tend to be provocative. They they t- they tend to provoke their children to wrath, and they tend to discourage them. Paul says, warns against discouraging the kids. Not only that, he, this is not in there, but husband and wife, husband and wife are manning this very uh, tipsy canoe and when mom sees that dad leans to the right too much, wh- what does she do? She says well we want to keep this thing balanced so I'm going to lean to the left. Dad sees her leaning to the left and he says what these kids need is a firm hand and he leans further to the right. This is a good way to overturn your whole canoe. This is a good way that you're, you husband wife, you're both adults, talk about it and talk about it and do what God says to do. Fathers, don't provoke your children. And I would say mothers, don't provoke the fathers into provoking the children by mollycoddling them. Uh, So what you want to do is say, what what does God want us to do? Don't be provocative. Don't discourage the kids. Then slaves are commanded to do the same thing as the children are, obeying their masters in the fear of God. Verse 22, whatever task you are given, Paul says, act as though the Lord himself gave it to you and do it heartily verse 23. And you can do this because you know that the Lord is your actual master. And his rewards will be a just inheritance verse 24. When you're if you're in a position of slavery, you know that the Lord Jesus is the one you're actually the one you're actually serving. But if a slave misbehaves in some way, then he will have to suffer the consequences verse 25. And men in the congregation who happened to own slaves are commanded to remember that they too are under authority. They also have a master, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and they are told to render to their slaves what is just and, and I want to underline this, and equal. So slave owners are told to render to their slaves what is just and equal. Now that is quite frankly bizarre. That's bizarre. We think, I can't get my mind around having slaves and having the apostle of Jesus Christ come up to me and say, now, as you see those slaves over there, whose labor you command, whose lives you control, I want you to render to them what is equitable, what is equal. And you say, "Something. there's something odd going on here. And the answer is yes, there's something very odd going on here and we're and we need to be looking for the gospel logic in this so i want to i want us to let Onesimus help us out anesimus uh, uh, you remember that Onesimus is the fellow who ran away uh, he was a runaway slave philemon was his master philemon was a christian master Onesimus was a non-christian slave Onesimus apparently stole something or wronged philemon in some way and ran away, and in a divine providence sort of thing, Onesimus encountered Paul. Paul led Onesimus to the Lord, and then Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, and promised that he, Paul, would restore whatever Onesimus owed Philemon. Okay, that, that's the basic setup. Also, uh, this, is not, uh, this is not scripture, but uh, we have an early, early church account that a, uh, a very early first century bishop in Ephesus was named Onesimus, and it is likely the same Onesimus. So Onesimus later becomes a leader in the church at Ephesus, which you recall is just 100 miles west of Colossa here. Now, when we look at this sort of thing, uh, masters, uh, treat your servants right, if we rush to an application, um, If we rush to modern application, we will get the application right, but we are going to miss the profundity of Paul's revolutionary sentiment here. And, And so we want to get the original context right, and then you can apply it to the modern situation as you please. So if we rush to a modern application, saying that the master is equivalent to the shift manager at Arby's, let's say, and in doing this, we overlook the profound depth of the principles that Paul's inculcating here. Now, it does apply to your jobs in the modern context, but you want to get the original context down solid first. Get the original context down solid first, then you can grasp, grasp the revolutionary implications, and then you can make applications as you please. It's quite striking, as I've already emphasized, that slave owners are told here to render equity to their slaves, and Paul does not appear to intend immediate manumission, immediate lib- liberation by this. He's not saying, uh, he could have simply said, slave owners, set all your fl- slaves free. He doesn't say that, he says, treat them with justice and equity. But he does have liberty very much in mind. Liberty is very much in view, as we're going to see, even though it's the long view. In 1 Corinthians 7:21. Paul says to Christians, realize that this is a, the Greco-Roman uh, culture was a, a, a pagan slave-holding empire. There were millions of slaves, and that was the world that the gospel goes into, all right? The gospel goes into, and when uh, preachers of the gospel went out into the marketplace, into the uh, public places preaching Christ, they preached Christ to everyone. They were told to, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, preach the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel to absolutely everyone. And earlier in chapter 3, it says, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So go preach Christ. And the, the apostles, to Scythians too? Yes, to Scythians. Go preach Christ, even to barbarians? Yes, to barbarians. But I noticed that there's a cohort of slaves in the back of the group there listening. To the slaves also? Yes. Preach the gospel, offering gospel to everyone you meet. Right? Male, female, Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Now, what that meant was when people responded to the gospel invitation, you were getting respondents from every sector of this pagan uh, civilization. You had masters being converted, you had slaves being converted, you had men being converted, you had women being converted, and they were all coming, and and they came up to you after the message and said, I'd like to be baptized, and when's church? So you tell them when church is, and then they come, and you've got, in your congregation, your new church plant, you've got uh, slaves of this master and slaves of that pagan master down the road, and you've got men and women in, in every kind of tangled situation that you can imagine. Okay, that's that is a pastoral problem. Right? I don't envy those guys. So the owners, <coughs> the owners are told to render equity to their slaves. And Paul doesn't have immediate manumission in mind, but he does have uh, liberty in mind. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 21, it says, "If if you're a slave, if you were a slave when Christ called you, Paul says, don't worry about it. If you're a slave when Christ called you, don't worry about it. But he says there very clearly, but if you have an opportunity for freedom, take it. If you have an opportunity for freedom, take it. What Paul is doing is liberating slaves by means of the logic, he's not just liberating this slave and that slave, he's liberating an enslaved civilization. This is a a pagan civilization, the whole thing is in chains and he's liberating an enslaved civilization and he's liberating individual slaves. But he's doing it by means of the logic of the gospel and not by means of fiery revolution. He's doing it by means of the logic of the gospel, not by means of fiery revolution. This is the yeast of Christian liberty working through the loaf of pagan slavery. This is the, this is God's way of doing it. When God does it, it gets done. If you, if you do it by revolutionary means, all you're going to do is exchange who's master and who's slave. You're you're just going to perpetuate a cycle of uh, retaliation, revenge, and so on. So, Let's see how this works in this uh, this uh, section. Remember that Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written at the same time, and they were delivered by Tychicus in Ephesians 6.21 and Colossians 4.7, and Onesimus, Colossians 4.9. So Tychicus and Onesimus deliver Ephesians and Colossians, and Onesimus also uh, also presumably, most likely, was the one who delivered the letter to Philemon, to his own master Philemon, which means that Philemon lived in the area of Colossae, and he was part of that church. So Philemon, the, the owner of Onesimus, was a member of the church at Colossae. So the general instructions to all were particularly applicable to him as well as the particular applications, the particular exhortations that are found in the book of Philemon itself. So we can say all of the book of Philemon applies to Philemon, but all of this section of Colossians applies to Philemon. And the part to slaves applies to Onesimus. He's a Colossian slave. So remember that Paul has just finished saying that in Christ there's neither slave nor free. Colossians 3.11. Here he tells the masters, and this includes Philemon, to treat his slaves with justice and with equity. Colossians 4.1. So, Colossians 4.1, masters, and here's looking at you, Philemon, give to your servants that which is just and equal. Philemon, I want you to pay attention to this. So, at the end of this letter, and this is how Paul does it, at the end of this letter, Paul commends Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother, Colossians 4, 9. He's a brother. Receive him as a brother. If you, uh, It says, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So Paul is saying, I want you to Receive Onesimus with open arms as a faithful and a beloved brother, as a member of your congregation. And he does the same thing to Philemon in that letter, urging Philemon to receive him as more than a slave, but also as a beloved brother. Not a serf, not a peon, not a chattel piece of property, but as a brother. Okay? And he, and Paul, as much as asks for the freedom of Onesimus in the 13th verse of Philemon, but he makes a point of saying that it really is up to Philemon. He wants Philemon to set Onesimus free, but he wants him to do it as an act of love, not as an act that is coerced from him, that is extorted from him by apostolic pressure. Now, there is some, uh, Paul applies some godly pressure in Philemon. He says, I'll pay back anything Onesimus owes you, not to remind you that you owe your own life to me, but I'll just... That goes without saying, Philemon. So there's a certain amount of godly pressure that he applies there, but he, he's not breaking Philemon's bones. He, he he sends Onesimus back and says, Philemon, it's really up to you, and I want you to do what you do as an act of koinonia, fellowship, and love. I want I want you, Philemon, to do what you do because you understand the logic and the implications of the gospel that we're proclaiming. I want you to get it. I don't want. I don't want to come down uh, from a new Mount Sinai saying, "Okay, that's it for the slaveholding." I want you to understand why there's no more slave. I I want you to understand why we're eradicating slavery and what's the position. What is the uh, principle underneath it? So, under in addition, if Onesimus, Onesimus had pilfered anything, Paul said that he would pay it back. To bring it down to the short form. To break everything down to the short form, love can dissolve the chains of slavery. Envy, malice, and hatred can only replace one set of chains with another. Envy, malice, and hatred, man's wisdom, secular wisdom, can only change who's the master and who's the slave. It cannot eradicate slavery because people who are enslaved to their sins are going to be slaves somehow or other. People who are are enslaved to their sins are going to uh, sell themselves into slavery, whether it's debt slavery or criminal uh, misbehavior, and they get themselves locked up. They're going to be enslaved. Slavery is the the necessary product, the necessary end product of unbelief. So envy, malice, and hatred can only replace one set of chains with another. Koinonia love dissolves slavery. It eradicates slavery, and it really deals with it, and it and it deals with it by masters remembering that their slaves, their slaves are brothers, dear brothers, faithful brothers. Now you can't introduce that into the equation without it transforming the nature of it. Uh, and one, let me give you another example of it going the other way. In First Timothy, uh, six. Let as many, 6-1, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren. There it is again, brethren. Philemon, treat Onesimus as a brother. But this goes the other way too. Onesimus, you must treat Philemon as an honored brother. That's that's the this is gospel logic, and there's no way that this is going to be done apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to move, and when the Holy Spirit is moving in this way, you are you are seeing a transformation of human social relationships. Now, here's the deal: the way God made the world, the world as created is hierarchical. The world as created is hierarchical. It's not an egalitarian paradise you have uh of, co- of course the sovereignty of god we are monarchists uh, christ is king but we also have uh cherubim seraphim angels archangels uh, there's a glorious hierarchy all the way up and then man is given dominion on earth um get given dominion over all the animals there's a hierarchical relationship and a hierarchy of husband over wife all of the there's a hierarchy So the world as created is hierarchical, but the world as created is also broken, it's also busted, it's also in rebellion. So you have the world that's a hierarchical world, which is in rebellion, which means that whenever people are in positions of power and authority, whenever they find themselves on that hierarchical ladder, they want to minimize the authority that's above them, and they want to maximize the authority that's below them. That's the, is just a variation on seeking the privileges first and the responsibilities second. It's the same attitude. So what happens is you have this hierarchical world in rebellion and there are all kinds of terrible abuses. Civil magistrates abusing their subjects. Husbands abusing their wives. Parents abusing their children. People abusing their position. Masters abusing slaves and so on. So you have these terrible abuses, and then we want to come along and fix it, and we want to fix it without reference to Christ, without reference to the gospel. And so we say, let's get rid of this hierarchical tower, and let's make it an egalitarian flat thing. Let's make everybody equal, right? Let's make everybody equal. And you see how that ends in George Orwell's brilliant animal farm. Uh, All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. The world is hierarchical, and you cannot make that go away. What you have to do is order it according to God's purpose and plan. You have to, order, you have to put it back the way it's supposed to go. You can't uh, suggest an alternative arrangement. So in the first chapter of Colossians, we learned that Christ had been given the place of all preeminence. Now, I want you to remember that there are three governments among men, all of them supported and sustained by the reality of self-government. They are civil government, the ministry of justice, family government, the ministry of health, education, and welfare, and church government, which is ministry of word and sacrament. Those are the three governments that God himself directly created. God created the government of the family when he presented Eve to Adam in the garden. God created civil government, as we learn in Romans 13. There's no authority except except that which is established by God. So God is the one who establishes civil authority, and God is the one who established the government of the church. Jesus ascended into heaven, and he gave gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So the government of the church, the government in the civil realm, and the government of the family are all directly created by God. And we bring sin into it, and what we do is we mess all of those governments up. And you have people in charge whether it's priests in charge of a tyrannical religion, or it's despots in charge of a tyrannical state, or patriarchs in charge of a tyrannical family, we mess it up with our sin. So, the enthronement of Christ over all principalities and powers is transformative and necessarily means a qualitative change in all three of these governments. For example, when Christ takes precedence over Caesar, Caesar isn't really a Caesar anymore, right? Caesar is a despot past which there's no appeal. And when he acknowledges Christ above him, he's not really a Caesar anymore. He, he turns from a pagan despot into a Christian prince. A pagan despot into a Christian prince. And when you have uh, tyrannical rule in the church, as you had the, the Sanhedrin uh, that put the Messiah to death, when Christ is exalted above them, it transforms the nature of the kind of authority that's exercised. In the same way, the coming of Christ transformed the role of the paterfamilias, the head of the Roman household, into that of a Christian husband. Just as Caesar is transformed into a Christian prince, so the paterfamilias is transformed into a Christian husband, and it's a different thing. It's not a kinder, gentler paterfamilias. Right? It's not a kind of, it, we're, we're not taking the paterfamilias and dialing it back two ticks. It's a different, th- it's a different thing. And uh, the paterfamilias uh, in, in the Greco-Roman culture had authority. Uh, he had the authority of life and death. He could, he could put slaves to death if a child was born into his household. The child was placed on the hearth. And if the paterfamilias picked the child up, the child was the, uh, inaugurated into the household. If he refused to pick the child up, the child would be taken out and exposed, left outside the city uh, to be enslaved, but taken and raised and enslaved, or uh, to die. The paterfamilias had that kind of authority inside the household. And that's pagan, right? That's pagan. And we don't say, oh, we want that only that's a little, we want that only a little christian No. It, what happens is the hierarchy remains, but it's, it's qualitatively transformed into something else. So, the coming of Christ does not eliminate the lines of authority, but it certainly alters how that authority is exercised. Now, remember, earlier in chapter 3, everyone was to put on the Jesus coat. Everyone was to put on the Jesus coat. This meant that you would see Christ in your parents, in your husband, in your wife, in your children, in your slaves, and in your master. You were, to look, you were to look to see Jesus there. You were to put on the coat, everyone else to put on the coat, and you're to see Jesus in those that you're dealing with. Look around the congregation, you're dealing with Jesus everywhere. And everyone is to put on the coat with that self-conscious endeavor in mind. The slaves are explicitly told to consider their work as being done for the Lord. Right? When your master tells you to do something, you do it, but you're doing it for the Lord. It's not just you putting on the coat. You're, to, you're functioning in a realm where you're assuming or projecting that everyone else is doing the same thing, whether they actually are or not. So the principle and must be extended. It must be extended into every relationship. Whatever you're asked to do, remember that it was Christ who asked it of you. And when you render good service to him, he will not receive it churlishly. You might say, well, my, my boss is a tyrant. If I, if I just do cheerfully what he says, he's going to say, good, I finally got through to him. And he's going to, he's going to derive all the wrong life lessons from this if I obey him cheerfully. Well, that's not the way. that's not what the Bible says. You're rendering it to the Lord, not to him. He is irrelevant. We don't obey Caesar because Caesar demands it. We obey Caesar because the Lord Jesus demands it. We Wives, you don't obey your husband because he demands it. Who is he? The Lord Jesus. You're, you're, you're to be rendering submission to him because this is what the Lord Jesus calls you to. All right? And this applies to absolutely everyone, husbands, wives, parents, children, and so on. Now, when it comes to our current debates over authority within the family, we have different names for the positions. There's egalitarianism, there's soft complementarianism, there's hard complementarianism, there's soft patriarchy, there's hard patriarchy, and then there's areas of overlap between them all. Not surprisingly, in a world full of sin, each one of these terms is objectionable. We shouldn't be be looking at these terms by themselves and then trying to adjust hard and soft uh, measures to them. Remember this, what what the Bible teaches directly. Husbands, you are the head of the wife. You are the head of your wife. The way, Jesus is the head of the church. But you cannot expect anyone to remember this if you are forgetting it yourself by refusing to wear your Jesus coat. You can't say, I want everybody else to remember Jesus while I forget him. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, everyone else remember that I am in the position of Christ here but I'm going to forget that I'm in the position of Christ. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. So you cannot expect, you cannot reject Jesus as the new man that you're refusing to put on while demanding that everyone else treat you as though you actually had that coat on. That is fundamentally, profoundly self-defeating. At the end of the process, if you say, what do we call it? Well, what do we call the social arrangements in the family? I think the best position, the biblical position, uh, and I don't object to any phrase that messes with our carnal categories, our carnal categories that that will reach out and grab for its own way. I believe the biblical position is sacrificial patriarchy. Sacrificial patriarchy. The husband has true authority. But in the Bible, true authority bleeds. In the Bible, true authority bleeds. That's the only kind of authority there is. That's the only kind of authority in a Christian cosmos. You have authority in your home, dads, husbands. You have authority in your home if you've been raised from the dead. The only kind of authority that exists in a Christian home is resurrected authority. That's the only kind. And it can't be resurrected unless it died. You've got got to die. True authority dies. True authority bleeds. The the husband is truly a head. And like the head of Christ, he accepts the crown of thorns. What's the head for? It's still gonna have a crown of thorns. What does it mean to be a Christian husband? What does it mean to be a Christian husband? It means that you get to die first. That's what it means. You die first. So, in the meantime, when, if, if that's the message, in the meantime, don't put on your devil coat. Demand that everyone in the family kiss the buttons on it, insisting all the while that they call that your Jesus coat. That kind of, I, and I've see, I've seen in Christian circles, I've seen in um, our Christian circles, men claiming the most appalling privileges, just like that 17-year-old kid wanting the privileges of of the position without the responsibilities of the position. What what is what what is the responsibility of the of the position of the Christian husband? Husbands, love your wives. It says in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well so what's the responsibility? If you want to grow into the position of a husband with true authority, you should reach for the responsibility first, right? Not the privilege. Reach for the responsibility first. And what's that responsibility? Dying. That's what it is. Father, can I die in my marriage? Can I die in my household? How can I die? Because I want to exercise true authority. And the only authority that exists in a Christian family is resurrected authority. And you can't raise it unless it's mortified, unless it's crucified. So don't pretend, don't be saying, oh, here's. Here's the verse: Wives submit to your husbands. Can't you read? What's your problem? That, yeah, you know, she's not the only one who can't read. There's other verses in front and back of it. There, there's the whole book there. So don't, don't pretend that we can alter the the cosmic structure of authority in the Christian worldview. There is true authority in the Christian cosmos, from God down to the lowliest insect. There's true authority. There's a true hierarchy, and the Lord Jesus is the head of it all, and the Lord Jesus is the one who died for sinners. That's, that, that's it. We're Christians. We're not pagans. We're, we don't belong to some power religion. The world really is hierarchical, but the world is truly broken. This means that men who want to maintain their positions of authority through straight right-handed authority, are missing the mark. It also, I should also mention, that women in rebellion do the same thing. They want to run the show through a straight right-handed power also. Carnal authority always wants its own way. If you're not obeying Christ, if you're not following Christ, if you're not obeying his word, then the masculinists want to snap their fingers and you know, get their dinner now, and get, where's my slippers, and where's my pipe? That's, that's the masculinist demand, 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 demand. And then if you say, oh, we don't, that's, th- that was bad, that was um, misogynist, that was, we reject all that, we've, we've uh, we come a long way, baby, and you do the feminist thing, then you have women running the show. And it turns out women are sinners too, and they're every bit as bad as the men are. Right? men and women are both sinners. And that's why men and women have to both die. Men and, women, and they die in different ways. They surrender different things. They give up different things. But women in rebellion do the same thing that the men do. Men in rebellion, do, they grab for themselves. Women in rebellion grab for themselves. And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. And Jesus says this, but it shall not be so among you. Not that way. We don't do it that way. Your followers of Christ, your followers of me, Jesus says, it shall not be that way among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Do you want to be great in your home? Then die. Do you want, to grow? Do you, do you want God to promote you in the world? Then die. Sacrifice, serve, give away. This is God's method God wants, and this is, this is how God can trust, entrust us with power. The only way, there is, there's only, when we're dealing with selfishness and self-aggrandizement and me first, me first, me first, there's only one detox center that deals with all of that. And that's the detox center of the grave. You have to. You have to go down. You have to be buried for three, three days and three nights. That's Jesus says it's not going to be that way. Uh, whoever wants to be great among you, I can trust you with, I can entrust you with authority, because you died, and the authority that you have is resurrected authority. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So this is more than servant leadership. But servant leadership is sometimes. Just code word for the soft complementarianism. Not, we're not talking about servant leadership. It's not that weak. It's like Christ, which makes it servant lordship. It's servant lordship. Husbands, you really do have authority. You really do have authority. And you, you could have a lot more authority than you do if you would be willing to die more than you are right? You need to die more than you're willing to die. You need to surrender it. And this is a principle, of course, that you make all the necessary adjustments. Parents, Husbands and wives do the same thing with their children. They die for their children. Children are growing up, learning to imitate those who die for others, those who lay down their lives for others. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ. This is the way God promotes sinners in a world full of sin. And it's the only safe way to promote a sinner in a world full of sin. The only way you can promote a sinner safe, with any kind of safety is if that sinner is dead and gone and raised to life again. And that's, that's what the church is. The church is a nursery of instructing people on how to get adjusted to their new resurrection life. Their new resurrection life, as it plays out, as, as, as you're a child in a, a family, How does it? what does it look like? Is your, if you're a husband in a family, what does it look like here? What does it look like if I'm a wife? What does it look like if I'm a slave? What does it look like if I'm an employee and I don't have other options? What what does it look like? It looks like following Christ and following the way of the cross. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you've shown to us, and we pray that your spirit would be working in our midst, teaching us what this all means.
0: Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus into this world to remake us and all things. Father, we thank you that as part of this, you have made a way for us to surrender all that we are, to lay our lives down so that you might raise us back up. So we wanna do that now, even as we offer our tithes and offerings to you. We wanna do so as tokens of our surrender. And we ask that as we do this, you would raise us up and establish us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's not possible for us to get the full impact of what God has determined to do for us in our salvation. We have some inkling that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus died and rose again to make us new, to give us eternal life. But in many ways, we're like little kids growing up in Oklahoma being told about Hawaii. We hear these words and associate them with really happy things, but we hardly know what the words mean. One of the phrases that the New Testament uses very frequently to describe our salvation in an attempt to let it all sink in is the phrase, in Christ. So here are these several passages, and hear that phrase, in Christ, and marinate a little bit in what this means. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. There is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's so much there. But the import of all this is that God is determined not only to save us, to forgive us, to remake us, but he's determined that we would have holy callings, that we would be seated with Christ and in heaven even now by faith, and that we would carry out the good works of Jesus in this world. This is both the privilege and the challenge of walking with Christ. He expects us to represent him and his glory and his authority wherever we go. We're called to speak on his behalf, to do what he would do, and to do it in his name. And if you think about it, that should seem utterly ridiculous. How can we, fallen, fallible, finite creatures, adequately represent the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand in all glory, How could we ever possibly do that? We can't, but God has determined to do so. And one of the ways he's working that out is by feeding you here. By faith, you are receiving Christ here. So Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. And therefore, by the wisdom and power of God, all that is Christ's is yours, and therefore, you are Christ for the world. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. If you look in your and at the end there, the last bold section, the section that we're in right now is entitled, Commissioning. This is the very end of the service and every week you are commissioned. This means that you are sent out. This is not just the end of the service. It's on purpose. You're being sent out by Jesus himself. You're being assigned a task in the world this week, and it's a holy calling because it's assigned to you by Jesus himself. So whatever it is that's before you, as a husband and a father, a mother, a wife, a child, a student, a teacher, whatever it is your place, it's a holy calling because it's given to you by a holy God, and he promises to go with you in it and equip you for it. So trust your God and receive his blessing now as he sends you out to do the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to do The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. And amen.